welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. asshole so <laughs> just being pointlessly <laughs> adversarial uh let's t- let's let's talk about glenn gould specifically glenn gould's essay prospects of recording which he wrote in what and to some extent the now completely obscure radio documentary from which it uh, originated 1965 right. was the year a fertile period mm, indeed a lot of shit changing the first thing that struck me reading this essay was how close Glenn Gould felt to me to other theorists of the time, specifically Canadian theorists, mainly Marshall McLuhan. And I'm not clear on the relationship between Gould and McLuhan. I'm sure it existed. I used to live in their na- I think they were like practically neighbors. I think they both lived in the St. Clair area. St. Clair, yeah, St. Yeah. Clair region. Yeah. Yeah. In this essay, Gould is talking about how the technology of, rec- of sound recording has altered things in a really fundamental way, and we're still trying to come to grips with that. And he's trying to send out some probes to try to think through how this is going to play out at the level of, of civilization, at how it's going to change us as a species. So I, I find that really interesting. And, and obviously, Gould was a proponent of recording. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't resist it. His style lent itself to the intimacy that recording makes possible and that sort of thing. So we can talk about that a little bit. But there are five basic ideas, I'll say them very, very briefly, that I got from that essay uh, that makes it an interesting object of study for our podcast. The first one is that recording makes possible a more precise capture of musical sound that transcends the limitations or the vagaries of acoustics. Basically, you can get something, it's almost like the music is playing in your head as opposed to playing in a particular room. That's interesting because that was literally impossible before recording. You couldn't get that type of intimacy unless you were sitting right beside the instrument. And even then, your proximity to the instrument was necessary. You couldn't just get the sound in itself, like in that intimate sense that you can get on a record when you're listening to something that's been mic'd very closely. The second idea was that Recording makes possible a kind of retrieval of the past. You know, for example, he says the Baroque music was made for stereo. I love that. It's like all the Baroque composers were somehow wanting stereo (laughs) sound so that people could properly listen to them. But they didn't get it for hundreds of years. And Baroque music went out of fashion. I think this is me reading into the text, partly because... The rooms in the 19th century, the rooms where music was performed. They become cavernous. They become cavernous. And Baroque music is made for small rooms, right? Yeah, it's true. And so recording makes this retrieval possible. All of a sudden, Baroque music can come back and, in fact, can achieve its full splendor on a record that it couldn't even achieve back then at the Baroque era. The third idea is that recording offloads the memory function. And this applies not just to music, but to all forms of recording. And when, we, when you record, the very possibility of mechanical reproduction is a way to externalize memory 
So whereas before the advent of recording, somebody had to remember everything. Now we have these machines remembering for us. And that's, I think, a key point. The fourth idea was that this can be me reading into it a little bit, maybe, but recording allows for a kind of platonic approach to performance. No, he talks about that. The way you can splice a performance to get the ideal performance. But the, the ideal performance can't happen in historical time. It has to be created in the studio. And then you get the piece as it should be, according to the artist, in a way that the artist could never bring about in a, in a live setting. And then finally that recording transcends time and history. He says at one point, the inclination of electronic media is to extract its content from historic date. So that whereas with live performance, the date, the moment in which a performance is, occurs is very important. In fact, it's the <laughs> sine qua non of its existence. Whereas with electronic media, the date at which the recording was made is, first of all, is ambiguous to begin with because it might have been made over a long period of time, might have been made in different countries. And there's an extraction of the event of the performance itself from any type of historical embodiment, from any dating. And he draws some really interesting conclusions from that. So those are the five ideas I got that we could explore. And uh, each of them could get an episode, <laughs> I think. Very true. But, but uh, it's just a very, very rich text. And yeah. I was impressed because I never read any of Gould's work as a writer. He, he's not a... He's not a fantastic prose writer. He's he's he certainly <laughs> is not. Yeah. <laughs> but his ideas are very well worked out and very polished and very clear. But he writes the way you'd imagine Glenn Gould writing, you know, yeah. extremely precise, overly precise, uh, almost mechanical. It's almost you can almost imagine this text being read by one of those computer voices. <laughs> but it's just it, really interesting. I was really I'm so glad that you brought my attention to this piece. I, I didn't know it existed, and I was really impressed with it. It's easily Gould's best piece of writing, or at least his best expression of the ideas that are like really fundamental to him. Should we talk a little bit about Glenn Gould? Can you tell us a little bit about who he was for those who aren't that familiar with him, maybe? Actually, I want to go in a different direction. Okay. I want to reframe what you just said, which that is a very economical and I think spot-on precy of this rather complex essay. And as you were talking, it reminded me of an idea that Marshall McLuhan had towards the end of his life, his tetrad, his uh, tetrad of media effects. Do you know about this? No, I don't. No. Well, he had the idea that any medium can be understood as it does one of four things. Uh, a medium reverses oh, into yeah. something it also retrieves something. So you can think of that as the medium's action along an axis of time. So where does it go? It reverses into something. Uh, what does it bring back from the past? And then the other axis runs between what the medium enhances and what it obsolesces. Right, right. No, I, I was aware of something like that. So I didn't know he called it yeah. the Tetrad. That's very interesting. It's a schematization of ideas that he had been playing with his entire professional career, but it's kind of cool, looks neat on the page. We'll post that image in the show notes. But it's a fun kind of parlor game to play, to take any medium and say, okay, what does it retrieve? What does it enhance? What does it reverse? What does it, in, or what does it reverse into? And what does it obsolesce? And 
unfortunately, you had five and not four points, so it doesn't fit 100% neatly into this. Mm. But one possible way you could kind of think about the medium of audio recording, as Gould understands it, is that it retrieves, well, it retrieves the Baroque, but let's say more abstractly, it retrieves what he refers to as characteristics such as analytic clarity, immediacy, and indeed almost tactile proximity. That's his kind of characterization of the sound that he's after as a recording artist and that he believes has been retrieved from the past by recording media. So we so we might say that it's that quality of tactility and analytical auditory focus that is retrieved, right? Right. Um, and what it enhances is it enhances memory mm. and obsolesces history. Right. You know, those are two different points that you made. The offloading of memory function, the specific context that Gould is talking about is the ability, for example, of forgotten repertories like, you know, Baroque Kleinmeisters and Renaissance polyphony and so on. These uh, hitherto very esoteric repertories can become the common fund of music for dining and entertaining. From that point of view, recording enhances a kind of cultural memory, but what it obsolesces as you pointed out, is history. The sense that the value of a piece of art is given by its place in a kind of linear historical time. And we'll talk about that later, uh, particularly in respect to his idea of the Van Meegeren syndrome. Right. But then, if that's the case, then what does it reverse into? And this is, I think, a little bit more explicit in the audio documentary on which the essay was based. It's unfortunate that the audio documentary can be found, I think, nowhere online, or at least I was unable to find it online, uh, except I have a copy of it. I have an old digital copy, which towards the end, he starts warming to a topic that he developed elsewhere in his writings. I'm thinking particularly the Glenn Gould interviews Glenn Gould about Glenn Gould, which is a particularly goofy slash scholastic sort of dialogue of Glenn Gould with himself. <laughs> and his idea was that, in effect, like the, the what we might think of as the cultural condition of modernity, a kind of hyper-individualism, and therefore in the world of art, a fetishization of the individual creator, the artist, and the idea that the artist is the guarantor of meaning in the artwork. Uh, that that would reverse into what I think he referred to elsewhere as a kind of neo-medieval anonymity. The idea that, you know, when you are really drilling down into the medium of recording, any recording you come up with is not going to be your own aut autonomous production. It's going to be a collaboration between you and the engineers. And then when you put it out there, you have no control over what other people are going to do with it. This is much clearer now than it was in Gould's day because, as he points out, the technologies that existed in the mid-60s for people to, you know, fool around with the audio recordings. They had maybe, you know, you could fool with the speed of playback. You could fool with the volume and the balance and a couple of other things. But he accurately foresaw that the options of at-home users would multiply almost infinitely and you can see the result now we have mashups and memes and whatnot of musical performances mix and culture say, well, and mix culture and, and sampling right. and all that yeah remixing and 
in that you see a kind of cultural condition of relative anonymity. You can say, oh yeah, this is a remix of some particular song whose author we can designate, but the actual thing that's hitting your ears, the thing you're engaging with, ends up being something like a medieval cathedral, the collective and anonymous result of countless craftspersons, countless uh, different agencies coming together. Yeah, that's interesting because you can see this in uh, electronic music, right? There are very few electronic musicians or artists who use their real name. It's always about finding the right pseudonym, DJ so-and-so or Dead Mouse or whatever. Right. And I think that's maybe symptomatic of this this new anonymity, this new kind of like almost craftsman-like anonymity that comes up it's strangely as a kind of an antiodromic reversal of the individualism that produced these technologies. Now the individual gets lost in this uh, network. Yeah, and he did he did see this coming for sure. Yeah, if the splice, as he calls it, right, the moment where you edit a piece of music and you splice two pieces of tape together, if that's mm-hmm. an integral part of the artistic process, then the piece that's been performed by this musician is fundamentally altered by the splicing performed by this engineer. It's very hard to ascribe authority or authorship to any one particular participant the artistic work emerges out of a kind of collaborative space where the author is almost a kind of a virtual ghost haunting the whole thing. You need a name for it, but it's not any one person, right? Mm. Um, it's interesting to see how that's played out because I really think he's he's right about that. Of course, individuals remain important because you need individuals to collaborate together. So you always have these, these human presences in, in artworks, but there's been this dislodging of the kind of romantic ideal of the author and we saw that in the 60s in literary studies and all that with the death of the author stuff you know so that's that was really prescient of him to observe that because he was working in a tradition in classical music where that sort of thinking was still the dominant form was it not at the time yeah Um, and still is now still is now right 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 it's worth mentioning the context in which this essay was written you know, Glenn Gould is, for those of you who don't know, is a classical pianist from Toronto, Ontario. But he loathed public performance, hated public performance, uh, was desperately nervous in front of an audience. One of my old piano teachers, James Toko, once told me a story of going to see Gould play at the Detroit Municipal Auditorium, whatever it's called. And it was... Oh, what was it? A Beethoven C minor piano concerto, which has a long orchestral ritornello at the beginning where the pianist is just doing nothing and waiting for the orchestra to finish playing the themes it's introducing. And then the pianist comes in with a dramatic C minor scale. And he said that Gould came out, didn't acknowledge the audience at all sat on the piano bench, which was absurdly low. He insisted that he couldn't play piano except on this tiny little chair that his dad had made for him and that he had worn out so much like all of the all the cloth, all the padding had fallen off and he refused to replace it. So he would sit on this little skeleton of a chair, this tiny chair, pointedly not looking at the audience. His body twisted away, looking at the back of the hall, curled up 
in an attitude of inexpressible anxiety as the orchestra is playing. And then as the orchestra kind of comes to its cadence, he suddenly lurches around and launches himself instantly into the concerto. And according to Toko, played it like note perfect and just beautifully, everything absolutely on point. Interesting story and tells you a lot about Gould himself. He was the only major classical musician I can think of who did what the Beatles would end up doing only two years later, which is to walk away from performance but to maintain an active career afterwards as a recording artist. Right. You know, classical music like jazz is, in its traditions, in its own self-understanding, fundamentally a performing art. And the ethos of recording in classical music has always been the idea of capturing a live event. And, and jazz, it's the same way, from which point of view. Splicing, editing, is seen as something of an artistic sin, like you're, you're cheating. You're trying to make somebody sound better than they really are. You're falsifying the moment of performance. Gould hated this idea and thought it was just superstition. For him, there were no redeeming features of performance. Certainly, he hated it. Uh, he retired in 64, and then prospects of recording coming out the following year is in many ways his intellectual apologia for why he gave up live performance and why he felt very confident that he could, con and, and he was quite right about this, he could continue his career as a musician better as a recording artist that he could paradoxically connect with an audience more intimately through the medium recording than he ever could in person. Right. Do so that's a little bit of context for, you know, where this essay is coming from. Yeah. And another thing we could add is Glenn Gould's style of playing, which is very idiosyncratic and instantly recognizable. He was a very interesting performer I don't know what his guiding philosophy is. Maybe you can enlighten me on that, Phil. But there's something very machinic about the way he played. It sounds almost like um, like stripped of pathos. There's something so precise about the way he played. He's kind of doing in classical music what Stanley Kubrick did in film. It's That's kind of, a neat you know, analogy. Stripping out all of any type of fluff or ornamentation to get to something mm, yep. very bare, very... Mm -hmm. Um, and he would play with tempo and that sort of thing to try to draw out of a musical line forces that we couldn't know existed until he played yes. it that way, right? He yes. would show these new potentialities in what he played. So he's a very interesting dude. I wouldn't say he was autistic, but there's something autistic about his style, stylistically mm. speaking, that there's something like it's so turned inward. It's so introverted that it's incredibly intimate. I find listening to his Goldberg variations, for example, which is what I've listened to the most is almost uncomfortably intimate, I find, and, uh. and vulnerable in a way that I find very appealing. You know, there's no separating out Gould's genius from his neuroses. Even to make that distinction is absurd because I think yeah. they're just so in, this, in a weird way, his proclamation of the death of individualism in music is ironic because he is such an individual he was Absolutely. such a unique dude who was doing something that no one else could do and all of the engineers he worked with in the end were serving this vision that was glenn gould that you know absolutely so it's it's funny the way that he embodies the contradictions of modernity you know absolutely yeah yeah it's been pointed out that for all he talks a good line about this kind of anonymity 
and his comfort with ceding a good degree of control in the recording process to his engineers. At the same time, he was extraordinarily controlling in a lot of ways. Like, for example, in The Music of Man, I think I read this in one of his biographies, that Yehudi Menuhin had this series called The Music of Man that was, I think it was done for the CBC. It was a great documentary about classical music. You can still find it on YouTube. And he interviewed Glenn Gould, and Gould prepared a whole script so that Yehudi Menuhin would say only the things that Gould wanted him to say. So that it's like Gould created a platonic dialogue where he, Glenn Gould, of course, would be Socrates, you know, Um, and then was surprised when Yehudi Menuhin just refused to play ball. Like when they started recording, Yehudi Menuhin just threw out the script and like actually asked him the questions he really wanted to ask him. He was actually rather controlling. And I mean, and yet at the same time, it's not entirely bullshit that he was able to think of classical music performance in a way that fundamentally repositioned its meaning, its significance as a practice away from the ego of the individual artist and towards something else. prophecy that he puts forward in this essay is that in the 21st century, live performance would disappear, that there will be no such thing as a live performance anymore. Now, I think we can safely say at this point that that was bullshit. Right. Uh, And in fact, I think today there's been a renewal of our appreciation of what a live performance (laughs) is in a sense that maybe Gould wasn't seeing at the time because, because of his personal issues and whatnot that he he couldn't find any redeeming value in a live performance. I think that now we see how even the mistakes in the live performance, especially, I mean, classical is different perhaps, but in certainly in a folk or pop or rock context, it's a party, right? (laughs) Like that's, that's right. The live performance is a Dionysian thing Mm -hmm. and you can't, you can't reproduce that. So that's what live performance has become. It has to be a kind of party, But I do think that live performance as a kind of mechanical function by which music exists, by which music is performed, that has vanished. Live performance now is the bonus you get. You discover an artist and then you go hear them live, right? So it's like this additional thing. But it seems to me like the grounding of any musical artist today is in the recordings. That's the, the primary reality. I mean, Gould and the Beatles proved this because they had tremendously influential careers without ever performing. And then performance becomes a separate function, a kind of like uh, demonstration of what an attempt. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's it's well, actually, I once I once brought this up in uh, a class I teach at Indiana Music since 1960. I sign this essay, and we actually ended up using this uh, tetrad, this McLuhan tetrad as kind of a heuristic device just to generate ideas about recording technology. And from the conversation with my students, they were pointing something out very interesting, and this pertains to the reversal part of that tetrad. You know, music 
has now become essentially free. Yeah. Just the basic ability to listen to pretty much any kind of music you want to, you will find it online. You can find it on sharing sites. You can find it on YouTube. And in many ways, this has been disastrous for musicians who formerly were able to make good money from recordings. This is not really true anymore. But this is kind of an interesting thing. I remember reading an essay, somebody saying, yeah, I now have a device. This is when iPods had firmly established themselves. I now have a device where I can put all the music I've ever listened to in my life into something about the size of a pack of smokes. And I've never had such convenient access to all music. Not just music that I have, but any music I might possibly ever want to listen to. Any music from any place on the globe. And I couldn't care less. I listen to music less now than I used to. Right. And I thought that that expression of ennui was kind of interesting. And I asked my students about it. And they were like, well, yeah, there's nothing special about a recording. And when you're buying something, even if on the level of consumption, you know, that idea of the fetish commodity, the, the fetish character of a commodity, like that quality of specialness or to use the Benjaminian term for it, aura, that's still something that matters to people. And it's sort of like, you know, if Benjamin argues that mechanical reproduction kind of destroys aura, you know, whatever might have been left of aura was thoroughly polished off by the iPod, you know, now by our phones. But what that means is if you want to have an experience that you will value as special, it's going to be an experience that can't be experienced by just anybody. It's going to be an experience that can be only had at a specific coordinate point in space and time. In other words, at a performance. And all of a sudden, what recording reverses into is live performance. Recording reverses into liveness. And indeed, a lot of musicians, you know, big-time musicians, people who you know, sell out large auditoriums, they're not making money primarily by the recordings. They're making money from their live shows, and the recordings have become almost like promotional objects. Yeah, it applies even to less successful musicians. I mean, if you want to be yeah. a musician today, you make a living, you're, you're going to be on the road. You're going to be doing shows. That's, that's where that's you right. make money. So the live performance has regained a tremendous value in light of this ubiquitousness of music, the way music yeah. is just everywhere and readily available at any time. And that in itself is an interesting thing. There's a moment in the beginning of the, the documentary Gould made where one of his interview subjects is talking about Muzak in grocery stores. Oh, that was McLuhan. That was McLuhan. Okay, well, yeah. Yeah. I, I should have. <laughs> I didn't recognize his voice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's why it's so brilliant. So what he says is that people who select the music that's played in grocery stores and supermarkets, they don't see it as music. They see it as programming. And that's an interesting word because it has two meanings. On the one hand, it means this is the program of music for this day of shopping. Right. right. On the other hand, it means this is how we're programming our consumers. He has this great line where he says, um, he says, like, you know, the housewife today does her groceries while experiencing some idyllic, nostalgic past. And I can see this today because right now in the supermarkets, they're playing 80s music because they know which generation is doing the shopping yep. and what's going to make them feel good. And it's going to be something nostalgic so that canned music and canned goods can 
work together in harmony. You know, something like that's what McLuhan says. <laughs> that's and, absolutely true. And McLuhan describes this as a kind of dehumanizing that happens because what's going on is that any type of rational agency that we still pretend is at work in, a, for example, a grocery shop experience, this sort of thing kind of gives the lie to that. It shows to what extent what's going on in a supermarket is unconscious. The way that you're moving through the space, experiencing your past, and somehow that past is influencing how you're experiencing these goods on the shelves. You're not experiencing all that interplay. You're just you know, moving through the shop and you're putting stuff in your shopping cart. But what's going on under the hood is very, very interesting. And it's another way in which mechanical reproduction in all its manifestations, but especially in audio recording, is devaluing the individual in its enlightenment sense of this rational agent. You know, like that music is there because it's useful for keeping a society together. You know, there's one part where Gould says that music exists everywhere. It's ubiquitous. He says that it sells us things we don't need. It makes us less riot prone, right? It controls, it sets a mood for things. So that the ubiquity of music in a way isn't just... We can imagine a world where the it would have been literature that would have been free, you know, and, and when you go to the grocery store, you're hearing and reading from James Joyce or something, and that's what people really dig. But it's not that because music is, is nonverbal, even when it has lyrics, it has a nonverbal power. And then uh, I'm just saying that there's a certain convenience at the purely political level, at the level of power and control. It's convenient for music to be everywhere. Because music, to a certain extent, can dehumanize you if by human we mean rational agency. Yeah. So that's interesting. And that, that reminded me of the way that, again, Stanley Kubrick uses classical music. Because what he's doing in A Clockwork Orange, when Alex is strapped down to that chair and forced to watch those films and listen to Beethoven, is that these symbols of humanity, like Beethoven, a lot of the images he's looking at, these images or aesthetic processes that seem to affirm all the ideals of the Enlightenment, the accomplishments of man, the greatness of humanity, the transcendence that humanity represents, uh, all of these are placed in the service of a dehumanizing animalization of the human. Like all of these accomplished, these cultural monuments are in fact, they can be appropriated and used in ways that completely subvert what they were thought to affirm right. about us. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Gould had a way of thinking about that where it's almost sort of, re to me, reminiscent of like transhumanism. The idea that there is nothing necessarily essential to the human being as we have known it, uh, that what we think of as essentially or universally human is contingent, is mutable, changeable, historically determined. This is, you know, the default understanding of educated moderns. And therefore, it can be expected to change again in the future. And indeed, I always feel like the transhumanists would put a moral valuation on that, that human beings should continue to transform or evolve, to use the preferred term. And Gould thought something like that, that humans plus technology, 
particularly the subset of humans he cared most about, which is to say musical performers, you know, musicians plus technology doesn't equal inhumanity equals evolved humanity. I've been using the term dehumanizing in a very specific way to mean the undoing of a particular idea of the human. Not in the usual pejorative sense. No. And it's, uh, I think as McLuhan used the word in the recording. Yes, that's an interesting question. Because like you just mentioned, in transhumanism, there's a moral belief that change is good, right? The changes that are coming, that what technology is doing, you, you resist it at your own peril. And in fact, you know, resistance is futile, as the Borg would say. Yes, um, it's, that, it's futile and it's in bad faith. Yes, it's always in bad faith. Gould starts this essay with a kind of transhuman positioning here. He says, um, the fewer that electronic media occasioned is, he writes, indicative of an endearing, if sometimes frustrating, human characteristic reluctance to accept the consequences of new technology. I have no idea whether this trait is on balance an advantage or a liability, incurable or correctable. Perhaps the escalation of invention must always be disciplined by some sort of emotional short-selling. Perhaps skepticism is the necessary obverse of progress. Perhaps for that reason, the idea of progress is, as at no time in the past, today in question. But then he goes on and says, certainly this emotional short-selling has its good side. The afterthought of Alamogordo, the willingness to kill off a monster of their own creation, does more credit to the pioneers of the atomic age than all the blessings this generation can expect that breakthrough to give birth to. And if protest against the ramifications of man ingenuity is inevitable and even essential to the function of his genius, then perhaps there really is no bad side, just amusement at and ultimately acceptance of that indecisiveness which proclaims the frailty of man's continuing humanity. So what he's saying is that even the tendency to criticize technology, if I understood this passage correctly, even that tendency is part of the process by which yeah, we are right. changing. So it's absolutely inevitable that technologies will transform us. And, and irresistible. Irresistible. And in fact, we don't even notice the change until it's already happened. Yeah. Um, and that makes him very McLuhan-esque, I think, in a That's way. That's right. Although I think that ultimately McLuhan was trying to say something like, we must be conscious of this so that we can steer it. I, I do believe that McLuhan ultimately was putting forward a different argument. I don't think McLuhan was as, as much of an apologist as he's been made out to be, and certainly not the apologist that Gould seems to be in this piece. Would you agree with that or disagree Yeah, with that? I think that's true. There's an ambivalence that runs through McLuhan's stuff. If you look at his very first book, The Mechanical Bride, which in many ways is untypical of his later stuff, it is written very much in the idiom of like just blanket hostility to modern mass media. Mm -hmm. yeah. His breakthrough success owes its origin actually to his work as a consultant for advertising industry executives. People criticized McLuhan as being something of a sellout, as somebody who went over to the side of mass media and cheerleaded for it. I don't think that's entirely true, though. I think that th there remained an ambivalence that is shot through McLuhan's writing. And McLuhan often said, you know, I'm not saying this is either a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. And I do think that he 
felt that the only way forward was with open eyes and a full understanding of what we're really up to such that we can, in fact, control it. Yeah, that makes McLuhan immensely interesting to me because McLuhan, among other things, was a daily communicant, right? A very right. Uh, devoted Catholic. And um, I don't think he ever separated what he was doing as a theorist from his religious vision, which he got from uh, reading. He converted after reading, I think he read Orthodoxy by uh, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, which is yeah. a fantastic book that we have to do a show on one day. Oh, it's that'd just be good. absolutely amazing. Yeah, I would dig that. Have you read it? Nope. Oh, it's it's. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, Every time I've read a quote from Chesterton, like someone I've known has quoted him, I've always been like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a very intelligent fellow. So <laughs> I've been curious to, to read more of his stuff. But um, I'd like to move back into this, quote unquote, dehumanizing power of technology, in particular uh, recording technology. At one point, Gould quotes a Jean-Luc Godard film, A Married Woman. Uh, there's a line in that film, the first thing we require of a machine is to have a memory. I love that line. In a sense, it sounds absurd, but when you think about it, Every machine takes up certain dynamics in a particular context and repurposes actually, can, them. Actually, can I try to yeah, go interpret ahead. this or make uh, make this make sense to me? Because my first impression is like, oh, yeah, does a light bulb have a memory? Like, it just seems to me absurd. But this is how I would dope it out. That, you know, every tool is sort of the obverse of some human use. Right. You know, like you think about a hammer. Why does a hammer look the way it does? Well, because of the way human hand and arm and biomechanics works. There's a, a history set, to it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a history to it. There's a set of uses uh, that are not just innate. They're also contingent. I mean, there's a difference between a hand axe from two million years ago and a hammer that I pick up at Hank's Hardware. And... They're doing the same thing, but there is inscribed in their very form the contingencies of the use of the of the human beings that use them at particular places in time. This is easier to see with a more complex machine, like a car, for example. Yeah. Where you can see, you know, how cars differ from one decade to another as different features come in. So, you know, anti-lock brakes or windshield wipers that have like different settings they go at different speeds um, these are things that have been progressively added in but these are reflecting different aspects of human use that themselves come into being through the prior imposition of that same technology if you right. see what i mean absolutely yeah and that, the whole idea of reverse engineering the idea that in Roswell, right, in the 40s, they found these flying saucers that had crashed and then they've reversed engineered them and come up with stuff like fiber optic cables and stuff from that. So it's a popular myth of the modern world that the innovations that came about after World War II were due to reverse engineering performed on crash flying saucers, right? This idea, as silly as it may seem, tells us something about the nature of technology is that a tool tells you how to use it. And how to use it was determined by how it was used and why it was made. So it, exactly, as you just said, it is inscribed with memory. It is in itself an object of memory. If I had never seen a car in my life, but I find one, there is a chance that if the key was in ignition, I could figure out how it works. And the way it works is 100% determined by how a human has used it. And so 
the machine is constantly telling you how to use it. And that's kind of McLuhan's point, right? That the media is the message. There is memory in every machine. There's a, a great passage from um, Chuang Tzu's uh, writings, the Chinese Taoist sage. It's very short, but it's, a, it's an interesting story, and I'd like to hear what you think of it. So when Tzu Kung went south to Chu State on his way back to the Qin State, he passed through Hanyin. There he saw an old man engaged in making a ditch to connect his vegetable garden with a well. He had a pitcher in his hand, with which he was bringing up water and pouring it into the ditch. Great labor with very little result. If you had a machine here, cried Tsukung, in a day you could irrigate a hundred times your present area. The labor required is trifling as compared with the work done. Would you like to have one? What is it? asked the gardener. It is a contrivance made of wood, replied Tsukung. Heavy behind and light in front, it draws up water, as you do with your hands, but in a constantly flowing stream. It is called a well sweep. Thereupon the gardener flushed up and said, I have heard from my teacher that those who have cunning implements are cunning in their dealings, and that those who are cunning in their dealings have cunning in their hearts, and that those who have cunning in their hearts cannot be pure and incorrupt, and that those who are not pure and incorrupt are restless in spirit and not fit vehicles for Tao. It is not that I do not know of these things. I should be ashamed to use them. Hmm. So there's Shuang Tzu telling you the medium is a message. <laughs> uh, but how do you figure? Draw a line from what we just heard to this gnomic utterance, the medium is the message. Why is Chung Tzu saying this? Why is the well sweep an inherently dehumanizing thing? Well, here I'm reminded of Heidegger. You know, last week I sent you uh, that famous Der Spiegel interview that Heidegger gave later on in life where he was confronted about his Nazi involvement, but also got into some really interesting ideas about modernity. And one of the things that Heidegger believed was that with the death of metaphysics and the rise of modern technology, which he characterized as a process of inframing. So he thought the technology, what it does is it captures from the earth certain processes and redeploys them in a way that separates them from their grounding in the earth. He says that modern technology is changing us so much that it is uprooting us from the earth. And he says that he realized this when he saw the first photographs of the earth from the moon. And what happened at that moment was that he realized that it was already too late, that man had already been uprooted from the earth. And that's when he spoke his famous utterance, only a God can save us now. And he said that philosophy's task after the death of metaphysics and the rise of modern technology, the task of philosophy is to make man ready for the appearance of a God, that the function of this God would be somehow to root man back into the earth. I think this plays to certain ideas, certainly that I've experimented with about the digital and the analog where when you use a technology, you're digitalizing a process that was analog before. So as J William James says, you're making it possible to skip the intolerable intervals of life. So when Tzu Kung is watching the gardener, he's watching these intolerable intervals between when the gardener grabs the water and brings it. And he's like, this interval could be eliminated. You could jump from one to the next digitally, binary, mm, in a binary mm, way, boom, boom. Mm. So what's happening in that process of implementing the machine? 
is that an analog process where each step of the gardener matters along the way from the ditch to the garden, where the air, ma everything matters, the weather, everything gets abstracted out and everything gets reduced to a kind of binary. The pump is working, the water is moving from point A to point B, and it's a purely conceptual understanding of a process that was very much um, non-conceptual before, in the sense that there's the water in the ditch, there's the water in the garden, there's the irrigation, and then you design a machine that allows you to abstract out of a very complicated process just the purely conceptual components of that process so that all of a sudden it's like a switch. It's literally like a switch, like you're moving the pump and then the work is being done for you. But what happens with that is that you are separated from the nexus of forces that constitutes a garden and the water and the weather and the earth. And the memory, obviously memory is key for a, a traditional gardener. There's no better illustration of the essential power of memory than a gardener, because a gardener is the ultimate empiricist, observing, collecting knowledge, inheriting knowledge from their teacher, being able to read or to identify plants, to know when they're sick, to tend to them. All this is this tremendous mnemonic process that is activated in the gardener, this, these generations of, of empirical observation. All of that gets abstracted the more machines become involved. I mean, this is kind of a banal point, but you can see how the more the gardener relies on these implements, the less connected he is to the garden, which in this parable is kind of, I'd say, evidently symbolic of what Heidegger means by the earth. So that's the dehumanizing that can happen with technology. As much as I want to avoid being an asshole and a Luddite, uh, because that's really very deeply frowned upon today, um, I can't help but see that there's a point to this sort of thinking, that it's not just uh, reactionary bullshit. That's interesting. You know, the medium is the message is a much quoted line of McLuhan's. And in a lot of ways, still, after all these years, its meaning is a little unstable. And I think its instability also might have something to do with the ambivalence of McLuhan's attitude towards technology. There's a good side and a bad side to the idea that the medium is the message, you know. As a conceptual tool, as a technology in itself, that line is itself a technology. Right. You know, because McLuhan says something in, I think it's in the Playboy interview, where he says that the content of any given medium has about as much relevance as the stenciling on the case of the atomic bomb. In other words, what we care about with the atomic bomb is that it explodes and has you know, tremendous destructive force, not how it looks, right? Not its decoration. And for him, the tremendous explosive power of a technology like recording, for example, and its ability to fundamentally remap the world, to remap our minds and ourselves, to transform us. You know, if a technology bears the traces of memory, we bear those traces in return. There's like a feedback cycle. You know, if that's the case, then all of a sudden it just it's the open sesame to an entire way of thinking about media. I mean, McLuhan really is the father of media studies because of you know this fundamental idea, which from a certain point of view is just neutral. You can say this is true of any medium, and medium can mean an amphora from ancient Greece, right? It doesn't have to be something with wires sticking out of it. Well, writing was the key one for him, right? Right. The advent of the printing press, for example, or even just, then, just writing itself, yeah. But it's interesting that you mentioned that parable from Chuang Tzu. He, uh, that is to say, McLuhan actually quotes that 
very thing early on in the Gutenberg galaxy. You're, that's where I discovered it. I'm realizing now. <laughs> that's where I first read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I think I first read it in Heisenberg's book on physics. Oh, interesting. But I, then I encountered it in the reading McLuhan. You're absolutely correct there. Yeah. Y- yeah. And uh, I can't remember what exact use he is putting that parable to, uh, but this idea of um, the medium, in light of what I just said, we can say like we become the message or we become the content of the medium. Yes. Yes. That's a great observation. I was thinking about that reading Gould. It's like he's talking about these cathedral spaces in which music was performed before the advent of recording. And then the first tendency when recording came around was to record pieces performed in such cavernous cathedral-like places. And he talks about how in the past, before recording, uh, music was occasional and special. So you went to a specific place to hear music and then the music was transcendent in that sense and was part of this place. And uh, with the death of the cathedrals and these cavernous spaces, then recording comes around, becomes more intimate, et cetera, et cetera. But what's actually happening, if you were an alien landing on earth, that cathedral-like role that music plays would still be around. We still live in a cathedral of sorts. The modern city is a kind of cathedral-esque space in which symbols are pasted all over the place and resonating at every level. Um, except that we're not attendants anymore. We're not pilgrims coming to the cathedral. We're almost in the frescoes and in the bas reliefs. We're actually part of the decor of the cathedral, which I think is what you were saying just there, is that we become Mm -hmm. content. And that really comes to light in a phenomenon like Facebook, where we Mm. are literally the content of this medium. And again, that speaks to this idea of this dehumanizing to the extent that it shows this process by which, and this is a process that was predicted in science fiction uh, throughout the 20th century, that we become tools for our tools, right? That we in turn become utilized and instrumentalized by the media that we've engendered. Now, this is really, again, an unfashionable point today, but again, I can't help but see it as an important point to make like Michael Garfield would be, well, I think he actually says it in our episode we did together that it's, it's almost foolish to take that line of argument uh, that we could somehow master our technologies and make them work for us instead of working for them, which I think is the point I, I, I actually said that in that episode. He sees that as foolish. I see the opposite as foolish. I think that the idea that we might be able to steer this thing, is much more hopeful and positive than the idea that we need to just kind of subject ourselves to the these mad transformations, even though to some extent transformation is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I think it's the difference for me between conscious transformation and unconscious transformation, which I think is what you were saying McLuhan was getting at, is that we can become aware of this and therefore have it work for us, or we can just do it unconsciously. And the results might be very different depending on which choice we make. I think there's something implicitly sort of hermetic about, I I don't know, what I I take to be your understanding of technology and our place in it or its place in us. Let's see if I can unravel this chain of thought. I'm thinking back to what you just said about the cathedral space of the modern city, which I love. And I'm thinking about like, it might be the last frame in a book called Alistair and Adolf, 
which I recommend. It's a really cool book by Douglas Rushkoff. Right, and right. It's a graphic novel. I mean, Rushkoff didn't draw the pictures. Someone else did. But it is a fiction that is not really a fiction. It's a way of thinking about the rise of modern branding and the omnipresence of logos in our built spaces and tracing it back to a kind of occult warfare during World War II with sigils, because Alistair Crowley maintained that he actually helped personally turn the tide of the war by coming up with the famous V for Victory symbol that Winston Churchill flashed. This V for Victory sign was actually, for Crowley, a Saturnian sign. Okay, so the swastika is a solar symbol, and if you want to defeat the sun... What are you going to use? You're going to use Saturn. And so the idea is that that V for victory sign is actually a Saturnian sign that was used to defeat the power of the swastika. This is different sigils or logos, if you will, that are battling it out on a kind of etheric plane. Rushkoff draws a line from that to modern branding. And the last frame of the graphic novel shows somebody emerging out into city space and everything is just covered with logos. And you think about that huge open space. That's a cathedral space instead of, you know, the stained glass windows with images from the Bible and sacred Christian symbols. Uh, we have instead like the Nike swoosh logo and, and whatnot, right? And to call back what you just said, yeah, we are the content of that. And you can see it very directly in just people walking around wearing Nike sweatshirts. Right. Like they're willing billboards. Yeah. They're participating in the billboardness of the built environment. But you don't have to do that. You can just decide to wear clothing with no logos on it. And somebody could say, that doesn't change the logic of the environment. Sure, fine. But it changes your experience. It changes who you are. And you can use your knowledge of the symbol-saturated space around you and you can make choices vis-a-vis -vis those symbols to participate in some and reject others in exactly the same way that, you know, Renaissance mages would understand, you know, the action of stars and the signatures of minerals and animals and plants and deploy them. I mean, it's the basis of paracalcian medicine. It's a hermetic attitude where it's just sort of like the human being is operated upon but also operating and knowledge and power comes from that process being made explicit and subjected to control by the magician it's a different conception of magic from some but that's a very particular conception of magic a hermetic conception that i think is at stake here you're absolutely right i think that's exactly it and i think michael Garfield would agree with that. I think that we'd meet there, that, that mm -hmm. yep. to some level, you need to become aware of these forces. And in becoming aware of these forces, you gain new agency. So if we decide to call that type of agency the human, then it becomes very important to preserve that, to try to save that from this collectivizing force of the technological, the way it's making us all kind of instances of one thing instead of singular events in our own right. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And it's funny because we were talking about Ficino before we started recording today. We we're talking about Renaissance magic and Renaissance humanism. It's funny because in the first chapter of an era, the whole drama of the whole era that's coming plays itself out. And what was going on in the Renaissance? Well, you have the rise of the printing press. You have the rise of the nation state. 
you have popularization of, of vernacular languages and literature translates very quickly to a kind of nationalism. You know, in the Middle Ages, people were just Christians or Muslims or Jews. That was the extent of the identity, but you didn't have a national identity in addition to that. So the Renaissance or the rise of the modern brings in these new identities that latch themselves on to the individual and further compromise, potentially, this ability to individuate that start to define you on multiple levels by your language, your not only your religion anymore, but what denomination you're part of, the Reformation. And um, working against this is this hermetic movement in magic where the goal is to become aware of the forces that shape the world in order to be able to co-create with them and to work with them to create yourself. Uh, it's a very individualistic kind of ethos, but at the same time, it's one that is perfectly aware that you are only an individual to the extent that your microcosm, that what you are, reflects some macrocosmic reality. So it's never just the individual against the world. Yes, it's right. the individual needs to learn to work with the world. Yep. Um, and I think that that's, yeah. To riff on Heidegger, only magic can save us. Right. <laughs> right. So returning to Gould's essay, The Prospects of Recording, the way he ends this essay is unforgettable. And he writes, The role of the forger, of the unknown maker of unauthenticated goods, is emblematic of electronic culture. And when the forger is done honor for his craft and no longer reviled for his acquisitiveness, the arts will have become a truly integral part of our civilization. Now, that's a hell of a thing to say. When the forger is done honor, the arts will have truly become a part of our civilization. So to give you some backstory on why he says that, this striking idea that forgery is somehow at the heart of creation, he introduces an idea he calls the Van Meegeren syndrome. So Van Meegeren was an art forger. During World War II, he perfected his imitation of Vermeer's style and created a number of remarkably successful forgeries, uh, like forged Vermeers. And one or two of them were bought by high Nazi officials. After the war, Van Meegeren was put on trial for selling off the cultural patrimony of the Netherlands. He then revealed that he had forged these things, that these were not priceless Vermeers, that he had made them himself, at which point the old charges were dropped and he was immediately charged of forgery <laughs> uh, and, and eventually died in prison, a kind of double jeopardy. Now, the thing about that is that, you know, Gould says, well, Van Meegeren is one of my personal heroes. And the reason he is is because you know, actually, Lionel Snell has an interesting way of thinking about the cultures of art, magic, art, religion, and science. They have, as we discussed in our interview with Lionel, different sovereign ideals. So, you know, in religious culture, the ideal is good. 
in magic, the ideal is wholeness. In science, the ideal is truth. And in art, the ideal is beauty. But he also says that they're distinguished from one another by whether we care about what they do or whether we care where they're from. And Gould gives us a thought experiment of a piece of Haydn. I think it's worth reading it, that little okay. that paragraph. I can read it okay. if you want, and then you can comment on it. Please, that would be good. So he writes, Some months ago, in an article in the Saturday Review, I ventured that the delinquency manifest by this sort of evaluation, and he's talking here about this kind of historicist evaluation of the value of music, might be demonstrated if one were to imagine the critical response to an improvisation which, through its style and texture, suggested that it might have been composed by Joseph Haydn. Let's assume it to be brilliantly done and most admirably Haydn-esque. I suggested that if one were to concoct such a piece, its value would remain at par, that is to say, at Haydn's value, only so long as some chicanery were involved in its presentation, enough at least to convince the listener that it was indeed by Haydn. If, however, one were to suggest that although it much resembled Haydn, it was rather a youthful work of Mendelssohn, its value would decline. And if one chose to attribute it to a succession of authors, each of them closer to the present day, then, regardless of their talents or historical significance, the merits of this same little piece would diminish with each new identification. If, on the other hand, one were to suggest that this work of chance, of accident, of the here and now, were not by Haydn, but by a master living some generation or two before his time, meaning before Haydn's time, Vivaldi, for example, then this work would become, on the strength of that daring, that foresight, that futuristic anticipation landmark in musical composition. Yep. And he's not wrong. That actually happened a few years ago. Wow. There was a pianist named Joyce Hatto, who was a legit pianist. She was an English pianist who had a modest career, I think, in the 1940s, but retired young for reasons of ill health. After she died, her husband started making available recordings that he said she had made during her decades of retirement, you know, recordings she had made for her own satisfaction. And these recordings were incredible. They were amazing. And immediately, Joyce Haddo was hailed as the greatest pianist you never heard of, a lost master, one of the century's great pianists. Unfortunately, iTunes developed that system whereby you pop in a CD and it will automatically search all the other recordings in the database to find one that has the exact same signature, so like the exactly the same timings for all the tracks put together. And some music listener popped his new Joyce Haddo CD into iTunes and it popped up a different artist. And this was the beginning of this unraveling. What Joyce Haddo's widower had done is he had taken existing recordings by other pianists and had doctored them in little ways, had added noise, I think, to make it sound old. And all of a sudden, this became a huge scandal. Needless to say, nobody gives a shit about these recordings now. They're only interesting as curiosities, but briefly, they were the greatest piano performances of the 20th century. So what the fuck? How can you have these transcendently great artistic performances that suddenly become worthless simply because we learn that the history of them is otherwise than we thought? Well, this is Gould's point, and this ultimately leads to what I think is the centerpiece of Gould's aesthetics. If you're interested in pursuing this, there's a wonderful book by a musicologist named Kevin Bizana called Glenn Gould, The Performer and the Work. 
Bizana points out that Gould's musical aesthetics were very idealistic, highly idealistic. Uh, he liked to quote George, I think it was George Santayana, who said something to the effect that on its highest mission, art is scarcely human at all. Gould was very uninterested in what he thought of as biographical trivia, either of a performer or the composer. It meant nothing to him that a given piece of music was by Bach or by somebody pretending to be Bach. For him, the reality of the music was not in what it is, i.e. its history, but entirely in, to put it in Lionel's terms, in what it does. In a musical structure that can be contingently embodied by this performer or that composer, but he just didn't give a shit about anything but that structure itself. And that structure ultimately is only contingently related to any particular expression of it, like a Bach manuscript or a recording of Glenn Gould. For him, anything you can do to serve that structure, that was the right thing to do as an artist. So I once wrote somewhere that, you know, like you can create a thought experiment, a completely untrained amateur performing an extremely complicated composition like Liszt's B minor sonata or something by systematically taking like a pencil with a little rubber eraser on then and depressing each key and combining each separate splice into a masterful performance. I mean, that obviously would be highly unlikely that that ever really would happen, but you could imagine it could happen, right? Or something like it. From our point of view, the guy who splices together a completely synthetic performance of this work is no artist. When I say we, I'm talking about the mainstream view of the classical world and also the jazz world, because in classical and jazz music, the idea of what matters is the performance as an inscription of some individual humanity. But for Gould, if Gould could have done that, he would, if he thought that he could have achieved some aim at rendering that ideal, almost platonic structure, he would have. But ultimately, the logical consequence of this is that, well, as Santayana said, art in its highest mission is scarcely human at all. What Gould wanted to accomplish as a musician was hardly even related to this historical occasion that we call Glenn Gould. And that, right. to me, is very interesting. Absolutely. It's something that, for me, resonates very, very deeply. I mean, this is where it's not just Gould's take on it. It's the take on it. It's what makes art so freaking powerful. And he, he goes right after that paragraph I read, um, and you just... Uh, beautifully analyzed there he says all this all the scandalous devaluing of a beautiful piece by its historical attribution right so the further in time it goes back the more valuable it is the closer it comes to the present the less value it has because it's more derivative in our minds mm -hmm. uh, of what was already done because we only evaluate works of art according to their place in an evolution of a tradition yeah. And without what they that, are, yeah, what they are, uh, what they historically are, speaking. historically speaking, he says all this would come to pass for no other reason than that we have never really become equipped to adjudicate music per se. You could mm -hmm. expand that and say yep. that we humans, because we are historical creatures, because we're so obsessed with this type of thing, what came before, what came after, this causation, this causality, we are unable to appreciate what any given work of art is actually doing regardless of where it comes from. So 
He says, our sense of history is captive of an analytical method which seeks out isolated moments of stylistic upheaval, pivot points of idiomatic evolution, and our value judgments are largely based upon the degree to which we can assure ourselves that a particular artist participated in, or better yet, anticipated the nearest upheaval. Confusing evolution with accomplishment, we become blind to those values not explicit in an analogy with stylistic metamorphosis. So what he's saying is that we're actually becoming blind to the real effect, which was very clear when, for example, that what was her name? Joyce? Joyce Haddo. Joyce Haddo. So when those fake recordings came out, people went, this is beautiful. Okay. And now it's worthless. Is, is the beauty gone? Isn't isn't the all the power <laughs> yeah, exactly. of the piece in the original reaction? Or was our reaction already tempered and conditioned by our expectation that it was Joyce Haddo? This is a, an interesting question, but my own position would be that Glenn Gould is right, that what matters, and I think Snell would probably agree, that what something does is more important than what it, where it's from, ultimately. And that, in a sense, history may be a means by which these moments of eternity come up, whether they're in art or magic or science or religion. The real classics, let's say, of a tradition completely transcend the tradition. In fact, enable us to see the tradition as a tradition and to see every classic reinvent what the tradition means. So that's what Nietzsche means by the untimely. Like when things, yeah. at things attain to the untimely, it leaves history. And this is something Gould says recording does as a matter of course. Recording extracts things from history to make them pure events. And this is one of the great gifts that music gets from, from the possibilities or affordances of recording is that it enables us to finally equip ourselves to adjudicate music per se, as opposed to just constantly hearing music within an always already existing framework of historical evolution tradition. And, and that comes with politics and morals and all the other stuff that the music itself just busts out of. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And this gets back to this question of like, Gould's specific kind of, I don't know, transhumanism is probably an anachronistic term for it. But like why he believed that technology does not dehumanize art, that it actually allows art to be what it truly is. Well, I think it does both, right? It yeah. has both possibilities. And again, yeah. again, the determining factor in whether technology will dehumanize us or not comes from the degree of awareness we have of what's actually going on. And what he's saying is that if we became able, conscious of what music is per se, we wouldn't fall for this type of historicist devaluation or evaluation. But of course, for all the other reasons we've discussed, technology has the opposite effect too, of stripping aura, of, of making any type of music kind of meaningless because of its ubiquity, because of its immediacy, because of its, of its accessibility. So all both of these forces are at work in modern technology. And the question is how we as individuals and as groups are going to, which fork in the road we're going to choose, right? Or which road we're going to choose at the crossroads. Are we going to be conscious of what's going on and therefore able to preserve what needs to be preserved and also to still believe in the, in the power of art and music to attain to some kind of eternal value? Or are we going to collapse all that in a purely utilitarian 
and framing process by which music is reduced purely to what it's doing at a purely mechanical level, let's say? Are we going to just turn music itself into one of the technologies that, that frame us and control us? I think there's something like that going on where both possibilities are, are there. That is another perfect JF finishes the episode line. I was listening to you. You were just like bringing it on home, wrapping it all up. You've got a genius at doing this. You think? I don't know. Okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> you, don't, you don't agree? No, no, I'm fine. If, if, you, if you don't have anything to add, then I'm okay oh, with I've that. Got, I mean, there's tons more. I've, I, you know, Glenn Gould was without a doubt the most, the, the biggest influence on me, not just as a musician, but just as a person growing up. Glenn Gould was so important to me when I was younger, to a destructive degree, actually, because I was very, very, as a pianist, very, very constipated and intellectualist and tended to view everything in terms of like, you know, like verbalizable content. And it was actually working with this sort of crazy mystic named Michelle Bloch that finally got me to fall in love with the sheer sensuous immediacy of sound. And that to me is sort of like the a fairly decisive turning point. It, it, I needed to, to stop worshiping Gould in order to really find who I was as a, as a musician. Um, I don't I really... had the same thing with Kubrick. I had the same thing. Really? Me. No shit. Film. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's interesting. I loved your comparison of Kubrick to Gould because I think there's something really similar. I was reading um, this guy named David Thompson. You know him? Film critic? Yeah. Yeah. I have a book of his called Have You Seen, which is a terrible title for a book. And it contains essays on, I forget how many films, a lot of films. It's a thick book. Each little essay is exactly one page long. And all of his essays on Kubrick films. It's interesting. He includes almost all of them, but he's totally condescending right. to them. He's uh, contemptuous of Kubrick's coldness and inhumanity. You know what critics always seem to say about Kubrick? Yeah. Which is also the same shit that people said about Glenn Gould. One reason why I listened to so much Glenn Gould growing up is because my parents had a friend uh, who had a bunch of Glenn Gould records that he just couldn't stand, so he just gave them to them. Uh, so we had tons of Glenn Gould lying around because my dad's friend thought that his, he was a cold and inhuman player. And you can see why that's the critical knock on both Kubrick and Gould, because it's so controlled and it's so much about a kind of polished technique uh, and a technologically enabled uh, perfection of composition and color and light and rhythm and just all the different aspects of filmmaking, likewise in music, right? And yet both of them, to me, are resonant artists because there's always a kind of ghost in that particular machine. You know, we've been talking throughout this conversation about this instability, this flip between the inhuman and the human in technology, you know, dehumanization and humanization in technology. And I feel like that flip exists in Kubrick's and Gould's work as well, that, you know, there is a kind of repellent coldness. And yet, if you hang around long enough, you realize that it's actually a tremendous warmth, yeah. kind of life-affirming humanity, Daisy, which sounds incredible. Daisy. Oh, exactly. Your answer, dude, you know? Oh, yeah. holy shit. Yeah, one yeah. of the saddest moments in all of film. And it's a computer. 
consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.